Okay, thanks so much for joining us here, the History 296 podcast. Uh, this is the episode for week five. And this week we are going to be beginning our discussion of the, what we call the kind of second phase of colonial rule um, that really takes hold with the outbreak of the March 1st uprising, which will be a central topic of this week, and um, the important consequences that would have for the nature of uh, colonial governance in Korea throughout the early and into the mid and late 1920s, um, which often would go under this banner of cultural rule. So what I want to do today is just briefly try to set the stage um, for the uprising. And when we meet um, in class next week, we can kind of just jump right into it. So as we discussed last week, right, the system that had been set up during the first eight or nine years of the colonial governance in Korea was highly repressive, highly restrictive, and limited um, Koreans either you know, from the peasantry all the way up to the wealthiest Koreans, it, it really limited their access to any real areas of power or commercial ability to, to you know, run businesses and, and so forth um, in, a, in a fairly extreme way. And um, this created, an, unsurprisingly, a lot of anger and resentment that began to bubble to the surface. Um, you know, even members of the old Yangban, who, of course, uh, as one would expect, were, did not near, suffer nearly as much as the common population, particularly in terms of some of the more violent actions of the colonial regime, but nonetheless were, were highly offended by their inability to work in in high levels in the bureaucracy, which, remember, in the in the Joseon system, considered you know was considered the peak expression of of a learned kind of scholar bureaucrat, and so similarly they were. Uh, unable to engage in any sort of large-scale commercial enterprises, which reduced their ability to maintain their wealth and standing um, within society. And as we had mentioned, of course, uh, people who were in more of the um, farming or peasant population, Sangmin, as they were called in the Joseon system, were obviously angered by dramatic changes, the loss of land, changes to the agricultural process, but also um, as we noted, the effects and responses to uh, the very heavy-handed and often quite brutal tactics of the police in implementing the very harsh strictures of, of the government general during this time. There was also an, an increasing faction of student activists. Now, these were often you know, children of wealthier families. Um, because there was really no access to higher education in Korea for them, were sent to cities like Tokyo or even Osaka to attend universities. And many of them, interestingly, became very radicalized by other students and faculty members um, on the campuses in these in these universities in Japan. And, and they often had much more, they had a great deal more ability to express themselves in Japan um, than if they had been in Korea, where, again, even being found to say anything slightly against the colonial regime or show any sort of resistance could lead to extremely harsh um, re retaliation in terms of uh, beatings or imprisonment or both. Um, however, these students in Tokyo and other cities in Japan were, were, were afforded a great deal more ability to organize and speak out. And as, as we note that some of these students would actually end up drafting what they called the Korean Declaration of Independence, right? They became uh, some, some kind of an intellectual foundation for the independence movement 
um, beginning that would really break out on March 1st, 1919. There's also some important international context, right? So 1919 is coming um, at the end, near the end of World War One. Um, or after the end of World War I in 1918. Uh, and during this time, there was a big peace conference um, called the Conference of Versailles, where all of the powers, even the losing powers, met to hammer out a kind of final settlement. And in, at this conference, um, one of the core tenets or kind of core negotiating points was laid out by United States President Woodrow Wilson, uh, who declared as part of his 14 points that an anchor of global society um, after the war should be that all nations should have their own state. And you can imagine two Koreans saying, well, you know, that sounds good to us. Um, we're a nation. We don't have a state. We're under colonial domination. And they saw this new idea of, you know, national sovereignty and the right to, to have your own state as beneficial to them and, and an idea they could use to press for other powers to help end this system of Japanese colonial rule. Um, now, of course, it's important to note that Woodrow Wilson actually was a, a fairly um, racist individual. Um, not fairly, he was a racist individual, particularly against uh, African American population, and, and you know these are things that he stated quite explicitly. But it, his notion of the right to a state and the right to self determination um, was largely rooted in um, the notion that this was for white people, particularly in Eastern Europe. Um, who he felt were, quote-unquote, civilized enough to manage their own affairs, which goes back to a narrative we've been discussing throughout the course, and, and you know, particularly in our discussion of the late Joseon dynasty and the international climate, this idea of who and who is not civilized and who has a right to self-governance. Nonetheless, um, the Chinese representatives helped Koreans into the conference, and they sought recognition from the United States. However, um, they were denied access. So we can see a kind of replaying of what we talked about with the, the Hague Peace Conference, where Koreans did try to go to these international forum and state their case for independence. Now, these were expat Koreans, Koreans living overseas who tried to get into the Versailles Conference and make the case for Korean independence. But as with the, the Hague Conference, the powers that were involved in these negotiations were not considering um, Japan's colonial rule in Korea as illegitimate. Many of them had colonial territories in Africa, South Asia, Southeast Asia, and therefore were not going to be very open to the idea that colonial government in, in overseas or you know colonial systems uh, as the one Japan ran in Korea was somehow illegitimate. And as we get closer to the events of you know specific causes, so there is this international climate, right? So that also sets forth um, a great deal of activity and and you know some guarded optimism among the Korean population that the global forces are moving in their direction. That that begins a, a great deal of dialogue about notions of Korean independence, Korean autonomy, and so forth. Um, and as we get closer to kind of more specific causes, uh, we, we, we can point to the death of the Emperor Gojong, who was living in exile in Japan um, in January of 1919. Uh, this, there's never been any specific evidence of this, but the, the rumor and the belief emerged. So whether or not it was real is, is almost less important. Many Koreans came to believe that he was poisoned and that uh, this also set about a great deal of agitation and anger among the Korean population in, in, in colonial Korea. And uh, the original day of action, which ended up being March 1st, was actually scheduled to coincide with the um, Emperor Gojong's funeral on March 3rd. And 
all of these things conspired to do something that the colonial government was was not able to foresee and, and not able to fully um, see coming is that it slowly began to bring together forces in Korean society that were somewhat divided in terms of ideology or, or class or so forth and bring them around some common cause for independence, for uh, mobilization. And uh, as we've talked about already during the first period of the colonial system, though Koreans' um, political activity was heavily constrained, there was discourse, there was dialogue, and we can already see the emergence of more moderate versus more radical ideas of how to respond to the Japanese colonial system. And that led to some schisms and, and divisions within these groups. However, by the time we get to this period, things have become so desperate and dire and there was so much frustration even amongst the more moderate groups there was a brief alliance where it said everyone agreed that some action was needed that the conditions had become so objectionable the conditions had become so harsh and the limits on koreans were so strong that it actually created this temporary alliance between these groups who often were at very sharp disagreement another interesting fact is that churches were seen as as spaces where some sort of political subversion or some sort of political action or discussion of dangerous political ideas could take place. Even the Japanese colonial government was very uh, hesitant to take any actions or, you know, barge into churches because the fear that that would trigger um, anger or resentment among um, Western powers. So uh, this, and, and this would be something we would see later during the protest movements in 1960s, 70s, and 80s in South Korea, um, they would continue to use churches and Christian churches as meeting places, um, which is very interesting. Even groups that aren't ostensibly Christian or are part of the church would, would take advantage of these spaces that the government was afraid to break into or violate. Um, and this, in this, you know, we can see this during, this included even the Japanese, the colonial government in Korea. And these forces coming together would really bring about the potential to have this massive uprising, which was of truly a massive, large proportion that absolutely shocked the government general in Korea and likewise the um, Japanese government in Tokyo, just with the scale and size and outpouring. And all of these things, I think, kind of contributed to bringing um, these forces together and, and again, creating this temporary alliance between moderate factions and more radical factions and maybe wealthier population and those who come from um, more of the peasant or working classes all shared this belief that this system was overly harsh and repressive and that some direct action was needed. And so we're, that kind of leads us right up to um, March 1st, 1919, which is a pivotal day and continues to be a day of veneration and celebration, particularly in South Korea, not so much in the North. We'll talk about that in class. Thank you so much for listening. I look forward to seeing your comments and questions and seeing you next week.
Thank you.